0: Amen. If you have a Bible, turn it with me, if you will, please, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be today, verse number 13 through verse number 16. If you, uh, recognizing that the majority of the people that are watching the service or participating in the service today are watching it online and recognizing that you probably couldn't hear a word I was saying when I was up at the very beginning reading the psalm. I was reading today from Psalm 60, a psalm of lament. Is it on and working now? All right, good. That's much more comfortable anyway. Ricky, I'll give you your mic back. We were reading today from Psalm 60, a psalm of lament And uh, essentially, we read the psalm today as an expression of our grief and sorrow, both as a reflection over the sorrow and stress and anxiety caused from the last two and a half months of dealing with COVID-19, but then also especially today in response to the death of George Floyd uh, this past week. Most of you all have seen the footage and have seen what happened up in Minneapolis, and it is gruesome. It is cruel, and it is absolutely unacceptable. And as a people, we stand before God this morning with a broken heart and praying that God would help us to do better and help us specifically as believers to find a way to do our part in making the situation better around this country and around this world. And so we stand together with brokenness praying that God would help us to that end. So let's pick up this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 13 through verse number 16. Uh, We want to say this is sort of a a passage of Scripture that's sort of sandwiched between the author of Hebrews dealing with specific examples of faith. And so we've already seen him talk about Abel, Enoch, and Noah. We saw last week with Pastor Bo. The story of Abraham and Sarah. And then we'll pick back up with Abraham and Sarah next week. And then after that, we deal with Moses and all of the people that come after that. Right here in the middle, it's a bit of a summary of everything the author of Hebrews wants you to see about all the people he's going to be talking about. So some of the people he's already talked about and some of the people that he's about to talk about with Moses and the others that come after that. And so in 13 through 16, the author of Hebrews wants us to see something about all of these people. And so I'll read it together and then we'll jump right in. The Bible says this, these, and again, that's speaking of all before and all that he's about to speak of as well. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them and braced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrim, pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you, and as a people, we we just pause and bow before you this morning. We recognize that you have been incredibly gracious to us in so many ways. We recognize that your favor has been with us in so many ways. You have sustained us. You've provided for us. You've given us people in our lives that love us and that we love back, and Father, most of all, we have grace in your Son. Father, we do pray this day, both in light of what the Scriptures say to us today and also of the context we find ourselves in, that you would help us to be a people who walk in faith. And that as we've seen all the way through this chapter in chapter 11, faith means obedience. We obey and we trust. And Lord, we are certainly in moments and in a season where we have to obey and we have to trust. And so help us, Father, I pray, to respond accordingly and to be the people you've called us to be. We love you and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start off this morning by asking you a question. It's a pointed question. It's a vexing question, but it's an important question. question this morning for you is this. How will you die? And I don't wonder here about like the cause of your death, whether it's a cancer or heart attack, lightning strike, car accident, boat accident, or something like that. That's not what I'm wondering about. I, none of us have any idea whatsoever about that kind of reality in our lives. No, What I'm wanting to know when I ask you this question, how are you going to die? What I want to know is this, what kind of person will you be on your deathbed? What kind of person will you be on that day when that hour comes? Will you die in faith or will you not? And again, just so that we're clear about that, when I say die in faith, when we talk about faith here, remember all the way through this, it's obedience and trust. This is what the author of Hebrews wants us to see, that the follower of Jesus Christ, the person who is of faith, is someone who is obeying Christ and trusting Christ in everything that they do. And so when I ask you this question, how will you die? That's what I want to know about. One of the things I love about this passage of Scripture, verse number 13, it does it again later in the chapter, verse number 35, verse 39, it talks about how these people that we're celebrating and honoring as the hall of fame of faith, one of the things it does is it talks about how they die. We don't like to talk about death, do we? We don't like to think about death. When death comes up, we want to change the subject. We want to put off plans and arrangements for our loved ones related to our death because it's morbid, because it's scary, and because we don't want to talk about it. But yet, it's one of the most important things that we can talk about because it is perhaps the biggest reality coming towards us. There will come a time in my life and in your life when assuredly this heart will beat its last beat and this mind will send out its last wave function. The lungs will exhale for that final time and then that's it. It's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment, the book of Hebrews tells us. So how will you die? I've been in ministry a long time. I've been around death a lot. I've seen countless people die and suffer towards the end i've watched them go through those final moments and i've learned this everybody dies but not everybody dies the same way some people die and when they die they struggle And there's almost nothing more horrible than that. Watching someone go through that, struggling with their death because they're not ready in some way, they're struggling with it. But I tell you, by contrast, when you, as bad as death is and as horrific as death is and sad as death is, there is something absolutely beautiful and moving of watching someone pass who is at peace, who is dying in faith. So while it's true that every one of us will die, it is not true that every one of us will die the same way. How will you die? I've learned this other principle over the years, and that is that people die roughly the same way they lived. We somehow some some way think that we can live this way, push off obedience and trust in God, and yet at the very end, we're going to tie it all together some way. No, that almost never happens Roughly speaking, people die the same way they lived. And so I'm pointing at death here because that we should care about that. But if we do care about that and you do want to be a person that at the end it could be said of you that you died in faith, then I would say this to you, then get after it right now. It matters how we live right now. Our obedience must be found right now. Our trust in God must be found in us right now. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in verse number 13 through 16. So when we talk about people of faith, what could we say about them? Well, number one, verse number 13, the first part. What can we say about people that die in faith? Well, first of all, they trust even when they do not see. They trust even when they do not see. I love this. Verse 13, these all died. So he's talking about Abel. He's talking about Enoch. He's talking about Noah. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Sarah. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about all the people that he's listing in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. These all, they died. And how did they die? They died in faith. That is trusting and obeying, not having received the promises. Let me just ask you this question. Do you have enough faith to live and to die without seeing all that God has promised come to fruition? In an age where we can do amazing things really quickly, we are often impatient and impractical in the way we think that things are supposed to work out for us. I mean, think about it. A couple hundred years ago, if you wanted to do something as simple as make a biscuit, you had to grind wheat. You had to knead the dough. You had to lay it out. You had to cut it. You had to bake it. I mean, these are hours and hours. I can push one button on a microwave now, and in a couple minutes, I've got not a very good biscuit, but I've got a biscuit. We can, do th- we can get on airplanes and cross oceans and do all of those types of things. Think about the speed with which we can do things today. And because of that, there's this built-in expectation of immediate gratification. And when things don't go the way we think they're supposed to go, we get impatient and we bristle and we even have the audacity to get mad at God. I'm just telling you, folks, that's not the way things work in God's economy. That is not the way things work in God's kingdom. It is long, it is arduous, and it is just the case that His people live, they breathe, they die, and all we ever see is a part of the work that is unfolding in God's kingdom. I mean, think about it. Abel, Enoch, Noah. They got to see little glimpses of what God was doing across the whole tapestry of history. They could only see a little part. But think about specifically Abraham. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God gives him some resounding promises. Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What? In you, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand of the seas and of the stars of the sky. Abraham, I will bless you and make you a great nation. He's an old man and for decades he goes and lives and he does not see God's promises come to fruition. And then finally, Isaac is born. And in Isaac, it would be through Isaac that Jacob would come and in Jacob we'd have the tribes. And then eventually over time, over a time that spans much, 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 much longer than Abraham's temporal slice. God would unfold His kingdom in the culmination of Jesus Christ. And yet 2,000 years later after that, billions of people around the world would be following this man, Jesus Christ, who comes through the seed of Abraham. Abraham is promised something that is in relation to the whole, and yet he only has the ability to see one little temporal slice of it. He dies in faith, that is, not seeing everything that's going to happen. It is often the case that we never see the full result of our faithfulness. And we get frustrated and mad when we don't see the full result of our faithfulness. We say, I've been faithful, I've worked hard, I've been obedient to Christ. And we expect Him to do it now. What you've got to understand is that we have to have a broader gaze. A broader gaze that extends well beyond just the slice we're in now. But to the whole of the fabric of history. We often get frustrated when we don't see the result of our faithfulness. It's often the case that we only see a small slice in our lifetime even if it grows into something much, much, much larger after we are gone. We live our lives, therefore, as people that believe and trust even when we don't see. Remember Jesus' reference to Abraham in John chapter 8? Don't flip there, let me read it to you. In John chapter 8, verse number 56 through 59 Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. And when you read, if you're just reading through the Gospel of John there in chapter 8, when, when Jesus says that, it's kind of an odd statement. Like, what does that mean? What do you mean that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day? But here's essentially what he means. Abraham realizes that God had given him a promise. Through his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. What could that possibly mean? It would mean through his descendants, through his great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, a Messiah would be born. And through that Messiah, salvation would be made for the ends of the earth. And Abraham, though he would live in this temporal slice and only be able to see with his own physical eyes and touch with his own physical hands only little bitty parts of the whole, he could look forward through faith. He could see in his mind's eye through what God has promised him that a day is coming that his work would pay off massively. Because the Messiah would come. Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. And the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones and they tried to kill him because they realized he was claiming to be God. Abraham could see thousands of years before. He could see looking forward that the Messiah Jesus Christ was through his seed. Look, brothers and sisters, we are called to the work of building and advancing God's kingdom. And you know what? And especially in moments like this where we continue to see horrible things happen, it'll be frustrating and we'll throw in the towel and we want to see it fixed now and we should labor to see it fixed now. Absolutely. But we also understand that there's a sense in which this unfolds slowly throughout history. And we must trust the Father. We must trust the Son, and we must obey and continue moving in obedience to Him. So number one, they believe even when they cannot see. Number two, and I think this is the most important part of the text here today. Number two, verse number 13, the second half, 13b, I could call it, through 14. Watch this. It's not the tightest little point i could make but i'll say it as concisely as i can number two they are increasingly unsettled in this world and they long for another world they're increasingly unsettled in this world and they long for another world so verse 13 they all died in faith having not received the promises but watch this but having seen them afar off that's what abraham was doing right Having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. Now watch this. They embraced them. And I love this. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For they, those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. What is, what is it saying here about Abraham and about Moses and about all of them? It's saying very simply this. That there's a time. Isn't it amazing how this sort of corresponds with age? I remember as a young man, some older men saying to me that there comes a point in life where you have more on the other side than you have on this side. Maybe loved ones have gone. People that you cherished are no longer with you. You don't get to do the things in life that used to satisfy you. And even if you could, they would no longer satisfy you. And there comes a time and a place where all of a sudden there's more on the other side for you than there is on this side. It's very easy as a young man or as a young woman, when you're a teenager, when you're in your 20s, when you're a young adult, to somehow think there's this hunger and thirst inside of all of us to satisfy our souls, right? It's in every last one of us. We have, as Augustine said, a God-shaped hole in us. We're made for him and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him is what Augustine says. We have this hunger and this thirst inside of us for something that will sustain and satisfy us. And when you're a young man or a young woman, here's the illusion that's easy to buy into because there's so much in front of you that's good and wonderful and pleasurable and enjoyable. I mean, think about it. When you're a young man or a young woman, there's marriage and there's children and there's careers and there's adventure and there's travel and there's all of those things. And it's easy to somehow think that your happiness could be found in the pursuit of all those things and then this is what happens you go down those paths you get all of those things you you find yourself married you find yourself with children perhaps you find yourself with a career you find yourself traveling you find yourself achieving things that you never thought you could achieve and it is as good as you thought that it would be and yet that hunger that thirst for something else that satisfies is still there. You begin to realize that this thing I hunger for, this thing that I thirst for, this thing that I most want, actually is not found down here anywhere. I'm hungry for something. I'm thirsty for something. And I just can't find it here. And you reach a point where you say, you know what, all I really want to do at this point is I want to do the work that God's put before me to do. I want to love my wife and my children well. And then I want to die and go home. Because I'm a stranger here. Because this world can't satisfy me. I am therefore like a pilgrim. I'm on pilgrimage in this life. I'm passing through this life and through this world in quest for something better. Because this world can't charm me enough, this world can't delight me enough. The achievements and the accomplishments and the praise of people cannot satisfy me enough. There's not enough money. There's not enough sex. There's not enough fame. There's not enough power. There's not any of those things that can actually satisfy our souls. Abraham and Noah and Moses and these people, they realized this. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 through 27. This is the passage I'll be preaching to you in two weeks. Listen to this. Steal a little bit of my thunder for two weeks from now, but that's okay. There's a lot of thunder here, so it'll be good. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's not just an age that he got to. You know, he hit 40 years old and hit a midlife crisis. No, 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 no. When he came of age, it means when he really came to maturity. He came to a place where he realized exactly what I was saying, that the fun stuff of this world is actually not quite as fun as I thought it'd be. There's something else. And so he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Listen to this. Choosing rather to to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ of greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he looked to a reward. There's something else beyond. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, and he endured as seeing him who is invisible. When we come to realize that Christ and only Christ can satisfy our souls, we get to a place where we're kind of like Moses. We're willing to let the chips fall where they may. And people may hate you, and they may mock you, and they may say all kinds of bad things about you, but you be obedient and you trust Christ. Because he has a reward for you. I should say it differently. He himself is a reward for you, as we'll see in just a moment. And he's better. Jesus said it this way don't lay up for yourselves treasure on this earth. Don't do that. That's where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. But rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, you want, to, you want to know what you're really all about? Look to the things that you fight for. Look to the things that you cleave to. Look to the things that you'll give yourself tirelessly to. And that's what you actually love and that's what you're living for. And I'm telling you, if that thing that you live for, power, money, sex, fame, you fill in the blank with your idol, if you're leaning on those things, you are like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The wise man builds his house on the rock. Jesus Christ, live for that kingdom. Listen to again what he says at the end of verse number 13 through verse number 14. He could have faith, having not seen the promises, But he saw them afar off. Can you see it? Can you see it afar off? We've been promised another kingdom. We've been promised another land. he, He could see them afar off. He was assured of them and he embraced them. My prayer for myself and my prayer for you is that we actually could see it and embrace it now. And with that, confess with these patriarchs that we're strangers here. And we're on pilgrimage to something higher, greater, and better. And We could just state it plainly. We seek a homeland different from this one. So number one, they believe when they do not see. Number two, they are increasingly unsettled in this world and they long for another. Number three, verse 15, This is sort of the flip side of what I just said. They're increasingly settled in this world and long for another. Well, because of that, verse number 15, third thing I want you to see here, they set their minds on that which is above and beyond, not the stuff that's down here. Verse 15, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, these people, Abraham, remember? Abraham, here's his call. Abraham, get up from your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. Well, man, look what that means is not just he's moving to a new location it means that he's walking away from his inheritance he's walking away from his comfort he's walking away from everything he knows and trusts and enjoys and he's leaving it all aside for what for a land that god will show him this is faith brothers and sisters Sometimes we have to let go of the things we most like. Sometimes we have to let go of the things that we're comfortable with. And sometimes we have to just step out in faith and trust that He's got this. And as we do that, listen to me, it is the discipline of a Christian mind not to let yourself constantly right here go back. You may may live in such a way that your feet and your body and your hands are where they're supposed to be. You're, You're in the work doing what you're supposed to be doing. But in your mind and in your heart, you're constantly going back and remembering how good it was and how enjoyable it was and how pleasurable it was and how comfortable it was and longing for that. If you do that, you surely will return. Like a dog to his vomit, you will return. No, that's not what they did. Truly, if they had called to mind, which implies that they didn't do it. When Abraham and when Moses set themselves to what God was calling them to, they set themselves to it. Body, soul, and spirit. This is why Jesus would say, He who would follow me, let him not be like the man who would put his hand to the plow and then turn back. You're not fit for the kingdom, he says. No, you put your hand on the plow, and you throw that behind, and you go. And you go not just with your body. You go with your mind, and you go with your heart. You don't let your mind go back. One of the saddest moments of my ministry, perhaps, you could say, as I watch people destroy themselves. I've seen this happen countless times. It was right around the time Facebook got to be a big thing, and a lady in my church decided that she was unhappy with her husband and children. She didn't like the way he looked. Look at all the weight he's put on. Didn't like his job. He doesn't make enough money. Doesn't like the status of their marriage. Doesn't like the situation with their children. I'm just happy. And I remember her looking at me one day and saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of hearing people say that cliche. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And what was really the cause of this? She would reconnected with her high school sweetheart. And she remembered the glory days how attractive he was, how strong he was, how regal he was, how wealthy he was. So, despite our pleading, she left her husband and all of her kids and went back to her high school sweetheart. She let her mind go back. Well, I see these people on Facebook, and she thought she was going back to glory, but I see what that dude looks like. Poof. I see their life. Poof. What an illusion. And how foolish. Listen, obedience. I've said this to you before. Obedience is not about being a good boy or a good girl. Obedience is about living. Obedience is about living. When we obey Christ, there's life in that. And when we turn from Christ, there's death in that. There's destruction in that. And so what do these people do? They did exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verse number 3 through 6 say. For we, we walk in the flesh, we do not... He's talking about spiritual warfare here. We do not war against the flesh, even though we walk in the flesh. For our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Listen to this. Here's the instruction. We are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself... Against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience with your obedience, when your obedience is fulfilled. Ralph Waldo Emerson understood this principle well. He, he had a little saying, a little poem. he said it this way: "Sow a thought reap an action. sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character, and sow a character reap a destiny." Folks, you got to control your mind. That's the point of verse number 15. You set yourself to the things of God and you go after it. You don't let your mind go back. Lastly, finally, verse 16. They they are rewarded by God himself. As as a matter of their faith, God rewards them. And I love the way it describes their reward, verse 16. Now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What an amazing statement that God was not ashamed to be called their God, right? I wonder what would be said of us. And as a result of their obedience, it says that God prepared a city for them. Jesus talks about that city in John chapter 14, 1 through 4, that he would go and prepare a mansion for us and that he would come again and receive us to himself. But now in the book of Revelation, verse chapter 21 and then in chapter 22, listen to the description of that city very quickly. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. And each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the city, in the street of that city, was pure gold, transparent as glass. Even better, chapter 22, verse 3 through verse number 5. Listen to this. No longer will there be a curse. What that means is all of the sick things, all of the broken things... All that has been made wrong by our sin will now be made right. There is no longer a curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There'll be no need for a lamp or for the sun. Listen to this. For the Lord's glory will be their light, and they will reign forever and forever. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a couple questions as we close very quickly. How does your faith handle it when things don't go the way that you thought they would go? And you don't see God's favor as abundantly as you wanted to see it. Do you have the faith of the patriarchs to believe even when you cannot see? Secondly, do you feel at home here in this world? Or do you long for something greater? If we're settled here, if we're home here, that's a problem. Thirdly, do you discipline your mind from returning to dwell on the world's pleasures? Or are you constantly going back, back, back? And fourthly and finally, are you waiting for that reward? Father, bless us and help us to be faithful to you in everything that we do. We love you. We give ourselves to you. We ask, God, that you would bless us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close our service here today, May I just speak to everyone here. If you're here today or watching today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never trusted him to save you from your sins. Why not today? Why not now? As we talked about earlier, God loves you, even though you're a sinner just like me. And he loves you so much that he let his precious son, Jesus Christ, die on the cross for you. And if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, he will save you from your sins. If you've Never done that, and today you'd like to do that. We'd, we'd love to see you do that. If you're watching online, you can respond to the numbers on the screen, and we'll have someone follow up with you. If you're here in this auditorium, and today you want to trust Christ as your Savior, here's what we're going to ask you to do. We're asking ask you to go out that door, and there'll be a room over there. I forget which room it is, but there'll be someone over there to guide you, and there'll be someone over there to talk with you about what it means to, to trust Christ as your Savior today and to give your life to Him. You respond today as the Lord leads you. And may we be as a people, walk in faith, which is to say trusting and obeying. Father, bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.